You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. Welcome to Law Technology Now. I'm Monica Bay. We have a great speaker for you today. It's Jim Sandman, and he recently gave the keynote address at the Codex Future Law Conference at Stanford University. He's the president of the Legal Services Corporation, and his keynote was out of this world. And we've invited him to recap some of the themes that he presented so beautifully at the conference. So, Jim, welcome. I'm delighted to have you here today. Thank you, Monica. Great to be here. Let's start. We're going to talk about your, the wonderful keynote that you did. It was so fantastic. But before we dive into your 10 and 10 list, tell us a little bit about your background and particularly about what you did at Arnold and Porter. Well, I spent 30 years with Arnold and Porter, a law firm based in Washington, D.C. I served for 10 years as managing partner of the firm. So I got a lot of experience in managing a big law firm. I left the big law firm world about nine years ago to do public service. I started as general counsel of the District of Columbia Public Schools, and for the past five-plus years, I've been president of the Legal Services Corporation, which is the country's largest funder of civil legal aid programs for low-income people. And at Codex, you just did a compelling keynote. We were all just listening to your every word, and you broke it down into two lists of 10. Start us with the first list. Well, here's my thesis. I wanted to try to provide an overview of where we stand with technology in law today. And my observation is that technology has made a number of improvements in law, but hasn't transformed service delivery in the same way it has in other industries and professions. The focus of technology and law has been on the lawyer as the user, not the consumer or the client as the user. And and I think we're lagging in the pace of adoption in law. So what I tried to do is to identify 10 reasons why law has been so slow to adopt technology and then 10 levers of power or agents of change that might be engaged to accelerate the pace of change. Last year, where I met you was after Codex last year, and it was an ABA organization and an event that was also at Stanford, and we were on the same panel, and you blew me away with your discussion about the fact that civil cases, which can be incredibly traumatic, are absolutely not getting the services that are needed. Tell us a little bit about what the stats were that you said that are so compelling. Yes, most Americans don't realize that you have no right to a lawyer in a civil case. And what's happening today is that huge numbers of not only low-income people, but 
but moderate income people are not able to afford a lawyer in dealing with civil legal problems. Civil legal problems can be very substantial. They can involve eviction from your home or foreclosure on your home. They can involve losing your child, needing a civil protection order against an abuser. The statistics that exist across the country are astonishing. Studies at the state and local level routinely show that 80% of the civil legal needs of low-income people go unmet. At legal aid organizations, which serve low-income people, studies show that what I call the turnaway rate, the number of people who are turned away from service because there aren't adequate resources to take care of them, range from between 50% up to about two-thirds. So two-thirds of people who can't afford a lawyer showing up, trying to get a free one provided, and they are turned away with nothing. The result is that courts across the country today are overwhelmed with unrepresented litigants. It's common in the United States today for more than 90% of tenants in eviction cases to have no lawyer, even though more than 90% of landlords do have a lawyer. It's common for more than 90% of parents in child support cases to have no lawyer. It's not uncommon for victims of domestic violence to have to go into court alone to seek a protection order against an abuser, even though the abuser might have a lawyer if he controls the family finances and can afford to pay for one. I found that one so incredibly powerful because, as you said so eloquently, to just even try to get help for, in most cases, women in these situations can be such a dramatic decision to make and a scary decision to make. And then they get to a place and they can't get services. Just imagine that. So it, it takes courage for a victim of domestic violence to make the decision to seek protection. That very decision can put her at further risk. What if he finds out before she's gotten the order that she needs? So imagine she screws up her courage to go to a local legal aid office to try to get help, and she's turned away. The door may be closed because it's 11 a.m. and they've already seen as many people as they can take, and she then confronts a choice. Either do nothing or walk into court alone in a very unfamiliar, intimidating environment to try to seek a protection order in the face of the possibility that he might be there. I have yet to meet the person who thinks that's justice. It's so, so intense. So let's move on to your 10 impediments, and you have the mic. So I've identified 10. There are probably a lot more, but these are the ones that would be at the top of my list. The first impediment to the adoption of technology in law is a lawyer-administered regulatory system that is too often more protective of lawyers than it is of consumers. The regulatory system is conservative. It's slow to act and react. It casts a pall of uncertainty over the possibility of change that deters investment in technology that would affect law. Let me give you two examples. The American Bar Association's Ethics Committee didn't issue an opinion on the use of unencrypted email for lawyers to communicate with clients until 1999. Now, that was a significant issue. Can a lawyer communicate with a client over the internet using unencrypted email without breaching the confidentiality of the attorney-client relationship? But it was an issue that had been around for some years, and uncertainty surrounding it uh, was a real impediment to the use of email for some lawyers. Another example, 
the American Bar Association's Ethics Committee issued its first comprehensive opinion on attorney websites in 2010. 2010. People who are looking to innovate and incorporate technology into their practices can't wait for things like that to get the blessing of the, the regulators to know that it's okay. A second barrier. We have a judicial system in the United States that disperses authority and decision-making across the court systems of 50 different states plus the federal court system. And even within some states, there's further dispersion. You have in some states, uh, often, for example, where you have elected trial court judges, a lot of inconsistency in court procedures between counties and sometimes even between courtrooms within the same courthouse. And that has an effect on the possibility for using technology to make law more efficient. An example, one of the ways you might want to use technology to improve efficiency is to automate forms, the process of completing and filing forms in courts. But you can really do that only if there are consistent forms used across a state. You can't do it form by form by county by county, which is the situation that exists in some states where you have different forms in use in different counties and different forms in use in different courtrooms in the same courthouse. A third barrier, insufficient capital to support innovation at scale. And there are several reasons for this. One is a ban on non-lawyer ownership of law firms required by the model rules of professional conduct. Uh, you might think that court systems would be a source of funding for innovation, but they are underfunded in most states. You might think that legal aid organizations that could use technology to improve the service of low-income people would be a source of funding, but they are woefully underfunded. And finally, if you look at who has money in the legal profession, you might think of big law firms, and you'd be right, but they're focused on current income, on profits per partner in the current year, and really don't have much of an incentive to think long-term and make the kind of capital investment that you'd need to adopt technology at scale. And I'm going to interrupt you on that because I think everything you've said so far, we could spend hours on each of the topics. But in my role as editor-in-chief of Law Technology News for a million years for ALM, it seemed really that particular idea that why should I vote for something if it's going to mean that I'm not going to make as much money that year, the reaction of that can be a real chilling factor on doing anything with tech because it's going to cost money to in the short run, even though it may help the revenue down the road. But if the guy is or gal is retiring why would they want to lose that money? It's a short way to view it. And I saw that over and over and over again in discussions about why don't we adapt more technology. Yeah, people are critical of American businesses generally for their short-termism, for looking at earnings per share in the current quarter. It's even worse in the law firm world where the net income of the institution is the partner compensation. It is a real barrier to investment and to long-term thinking. And there's a lot of, over the last couple of years, Dan Katz was very involved in addressing some of these on reInvent Law. And what's an interesting thing to watch right now is what's going on in the UK. Tell us a little bit, I don't want to go too long on this, but about what's going on in the UK and the ability to have non-lawyers be involved in the costs and the managements of running shops like that. 
Both the UK and Australia have approved non-lawyer ownership of law firms. I think it's still too early to tell what the impact of that is on things like technology, on uh, making services more available, promoting efficiency. But it's a very interesting development. I can tell you the world hasn't fallen apart in those countries because they've permitted non-lawyer ownership <laughs> of law firms. Many of the opponents of non-lawyer ownership in the United States paint a, a doom and gloom scenario where uh, they say the profession would just lose its its character and its values and its integrity if such a thing were to be permitted. But that's not happened in the UK or Australia. That reminds me a little bit about the ABA's recent thing with Rocket Lawyer, where they quickly shut down a project that was going to allow use of forms and use of short-term conversations with lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There, there just are a lot of walls, and I think people are scared. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, let me get you back to your list. Number four. Number four, uh, we have a pricing model in law that does not reward and can actually penalize efficiency. It's the billable hour. You get paid more for taking longer to do things. It works just fine for many lawyers. But when you think about the things that encourage innovation and adoption of technology, one of the most common is to try to increase efficiency to allow you to do a particular task in less time. And as long as you're using the billable hour as your pricing model, that incentive doesn't exist. There's a lot of talk about alternative fee arrangements and lawyers moving away from the billable hour. I think it's um, a fiction that it's, that it's actually happening. I think the vast majority of work that's done in law firms certainly today is still being done on the billable hour basis. A lot of lawyers, when they're talking about alternative fee arrangements, are really talking only about discounting their hourly billing rates and maybe imposing a cap on them. Uh, wow, that's really wild. <laughs> that's yeah. the billable hour. I think for the last 17 years, I've been saying that the billable hours will be gone in five years. So you can see that I was completely wrong. <laughs> Not happening. Not happening. And that then brings us to number five. Number five, the law firm business structure, the partnership structure, can impede strong management and quick innovation. You have management responsibility dispersed across the partnership. You often have a number of committees. That, that's not a great structure for being uh, nimble and, and agile and making prompt decisions on investments. A sixth impediment is a malpractice insurance environment that discourages new processes. Insurers rate risk based on experience. If you propose to conduct your practice in a way that's new and different and untested, a malpractice insurer could be squeamish about it and say, well, we're not okay with that because we don't know how to rate the risk of the way that you're proposing to do business. A seventh impediment is a legal system that's based on precedent. It's based on what's been blessed before, what courts have said are okay. And that can deter the adoption of innovation. Here's an example. The use of predictive coding to review documents and discovery to try to identify those that are responsive to a, a discovery request can really promote efficiency and I would argue can promote better accuracy than human review of documents. But it's been a very slow process to get courts to approve that because it's new, because there aren't prior cases saying that it's okay. So it's been very slow going to get the judiciary to the point where they're comfortable 
with predictive coding as a way of responding to discovery requests. An eighth barrier, our system of legal education in the United States provides no grounding in management, efficiency, client service, user focus, project management, use of business process analysis, all of these things lawyers have to learn after they get out of law school, and they often have to do it on their own without good role models to teach them how to do it. So they're, they're kind of feeling their, their way. Uh, that's not the kind of uh, professional education that's most conducive to creative thinking and bold management approaches. A ninth barrier, uh, our profession places an emphasis, our legal education places an emphasis on lawyerly judgment, the notion that every case is different. And what that does is to discourage thinking about ways that you might routinize work. Well, you can't routinize the work. Every case is different. Routinizing assumes that everything's the same. That's simply not true. There are a lot of similarities among types of cases that lawyers handle where Technology could certainly improve efficiency. And finally, we've got as a barrier the personalities of lawyers themselves. Think about who becomes a lawyer. It's a person who's risk averse. It's the person <laughs> who made a very deliberate decision not to go to business school. I went to the University of Pennsylvania Law School. There's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the Wharton School, uh, Adam Grant, who occasionally teaches at the law school. And I've heard that he has said that the law students at Penn are smarter than the Wharton students. But the, <laughs> the, but the law students are so risk-averse that it holds them back and deters their achievement. I think that's fascinating. Well, now that we've depressed everybody... We have some really good news, and I think after if we hear the second part of the 10 list, that a lot of people will be interested in Codex, the Stanford Center for Legal Informatics, which is where you gave this wonderful keynote on the 20th of May. So start that list. So I think we can overcome these impediments, and I think we do it by asking who controls the levers of power? Who are the people who can influence change and cause adoption of technology to proceed at a much faster pace than it has so far? Who are the third-party agents of change who can get lawyers to do what they wouldn't choose to do on their own? The answer, it won't surprise you to hear, in my view, is that by and large, you need to work around the lawyers. Uh, <laughs> you need to uh, go over their heads. Not in all cases, but I think you need to be thinking in that direction. So let's start with courts and court administrators. They can have a strong interest in improving the use of technology, increasing the adoption of technology to deal with this crisis in unrepresented litigants overwhelming their courtrooms. It is very hard for a judge to handle a case where a person appearing in front of her or him is, is not represented. It slows the docket down. It can be very confusing for the person appearing in front of the judge. The judge is limited in his or her ability to intervene to try to help the person because they the judge has to be impartial. They're very receptive to technology changes that would increase access to justice for unrepresented people. Let me give you a couple of examples. I talked previously about the importance of having consistent forms in place in a, in a particular state in order to permit automation of the forms process. There was a situation a few years ago in Texas where the Texas Supreme Court wanted to simplify the forms used in family law cases. 
and they got significant resistance from the family law section of the Texas bar. I think the family lawyers felt a little threatened by this. It might allow people to do more with fewer lawyers. And eventually, the Texas Supreme Court just mandated the adoption of these simplified forms. They said, enough already. We're going to go ahead and do it. Another example. This doesn't have to do with technology, but it has to do with innovation. I think a lot more could be done with people who are not lawyers, people who are equivalent to, uh, say, physician's assistants in the, in the medical profession. You've seen a lot of movement in recent years in medicine toward permitting doctors to do what only doctors can do and using other people to provide other levels of service in, in medicine. Why couldn't we do that in law? Well, there was a movement in the state of Washington to permit people who are not lawyers with special training and with licensure, uh, subject to a regulatory system, to engage in some elements of the practice of law. Probably won't surprise you to learn that this ran into resistance from the bar who saw this as a threat and didn't like it. Ultimately, the Washington Supreme Court decided that we're just going to go ahead and do it. And they adopted a, uh, a category of practitioner called limited license legal technician, people who are not uh, graduates of law schools, who have not passed the bar, who have gone through a rigorous training program and been certified to provide assistance in family law cases. So uh, courts and court administrators look to them as, as helpmates. Second, uh, look to the people who fund legal services for low-income people, like the Legal Services Corporation, where I work. We have a small fund uh, that Congress appropriates to us every year, $4 million, to encourage innovation and technology. And it has been very effective in getting legal aid programs to adopt technology to make their services more available to people who may live at some distance from a legal aid office, to automate forms, uh, to create document applications that I'd analogize to TurboTax that permit a person to complete a plain language interview and then uses the answers to questions posed to the person to complete a court-approved form. Another example, the Florida Bar Foundation, which is the state-level funder of legal services in Florida, a few years ago required all of the 31 legal aid programs that it funds in Florida to adopt the same case management system that would generate consistent, comparable information across the state to allow them to, to get better data uh, to study the effectiveness of legal aid. They paid for it. They funded that. Uh, they said, we've got the money available for all of you to adopt this particular system that we think is the best. A third uh, place to go if, when the lawyers aren't being cooperative Think about their clients. Their clients have an interest in efficiency. Their clients have an interest in speeding things up. Uh, there are places in the client community that you can go to enlist allies, like the Association of Corporate Counsel, the Association of General Counsel. Try to enlist leaders that you see in corporate legal departments. I love the fact that you talked about having the GCs and getting them involved. And you spoke at Codex about an amazing project that got a lot of traction that was done by Casey Flaherty, who was at Kia Motors at the time. Uh, tell us a little bit about what he did. Well, he required that the lawyers at the outside law firms he was hiring be able to demonstrate that they had a basic level of technological competence. He had a test that they had to be able to pass. One of the things that you needed to be able to do was to convert a Word document into a PDF without scanning it. Now, when I said that at Codex, a lot of people laughed. 
you'd be surprised at the number of lawyers who don't know how to do that, even today. Well, I was one of those people because I didn't know how to do it. And I would say that after I read that, I went, I'm going to try that. And now I would say that it's probably the number one thing that I use. So that was an amazing project that he did and got a lot of traction. I think that I think that kind of changed in a lot of ways how people saw that because at first they're going, what do you mean you want me to bring one of my associates in to, to have to do this? It really had a big impact and I think the community gravitated to it and it's been a real change maker, I think. But I interrupted you. Is there anything more regarding the GCs that we should talk about? No, just think about approaching them in an organized way and identifying some real standout leaders there who could be enlisted to support the cause and put pressure on their peers. Uh, my fourth category of change agents is the legal media, particularly uh, American lawyer media and other organizations that rate lawyers and law firms. And what I'd suggest is that they be approached with the idea of rating law firms based on their use of technology. Get the legal media to focus on the problem. And I think you'll get the attention of law firms. Law firms don't like to show up poorly in ratings. A fifth category of change agents uh, may sound a little inconsistent with, uh, with what I said in my list of impediments, but regulators, uh, including bar examiners, are potential allies here. What about the idea of requiring technological proficiency as a component of competency? Our current regulatory system requires that lawyers provide competent service. Can you do that if you're not able to use technology appropriately and efficiently? I think there's a strong argument that you can't. And there has been some talk in regulatory circles about adding a requirement of basic technology competency as a requirement to be able to practice law. A sixth group of allies, potential allies, the insurance companies that pay for the, uh, clients' legal services, particularly those that are defending, say, corporations that have been sued. They have an interest, a very strong interest, in cost-effective legal service, efficient legal service. And uh, since they control the purse strings, they can have a powerful influence on the conduct of lawyers and law firms and require that they adopt efficiency-improving technologies as a condition of being hired. A seventh category also might sound a little inconsistent with what I said previously, but malpractice insurers are also potential allies if you can persuade them that technology will reduce risk, and even more importantly, if you can persuade them that failure to adopt certain technology will breach a standard of care and expose an insured law firm to greater risk. An eighth category, there are some law firm leaders, some, uh, who are willing to step out, who get it. Give them a platform, shine a spotlight on them, allow them to influence their competitors and, and get some positive attention in a way that may cause others to act differently. Ninth, uh, don't give up on legal academia. On the contrary, we need to be thinking a longer-term strategy here about how we can change the education of, of lawyers to make them more receptive to technology. And there are some good examples out there. I think of one at Georgetown University Law Center. A professor there, Sunina Rostein, uh, teaches a course every year that requires law students to develop an app 
as a part of the course. They get the suggestions for the apps to be developed from legal aid and other public interest organizations that have identified a need they think can be addressed through technology. They select about eight different apps to be developed. They're split up among the roughly 26 students in the class. And this, the students in the course of a single semester have to develop an app and then demonstrate it in a competition that's judged at the end of the semester. What a great way to be forcing law students to think even before they've begun to practice law about how technology should be integrated into their practice. And finally, since we're talking here about consumer protection issues, about appropriate service of the ultimate users of legal services, not the lawyers, but the clients, think about the possibility of going to state legislatures if the regulatory system that lawyers have set up to regulate themselves is failing, if it's not acting quickly enough to protect the interest of consumers. We've been talking with Jim Sandman. Fantastic fantastic list. Two lists of 10. If you are interested in learning more about this, Jim, how can someone reach out to you and your organization? Uh, you can reach me at jsandman at lsc.gov. I respond to my own email, or you can call me at 202-295-1515. My point here is that uh, we really need to be thinking about enlisting allies uh, to promote change. We need to be focusing on adoption. Innovation without adoption isn't worth anything. And I think that uh, by including interested parties in the process of promoting adoption, we can make more progress more quickly. Jim, thank you so much for your time. It's so inspiring and it's so important for folks to know what's going on in these arenas. And you just gave us such good concrete information. I thank you very, very much. I'm Monica Bay, and we'll see you in the next edition of Law Technology Now. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.